Welcome back to the Flow Performance Podcast. My name is Ricky Dan, founder of Flow Nutrition and your host. On today's episode, we chat with biomechanist Dr. James Forsyth. James is a lecturer, an academic program director, and biomechanist at the University of Wollongong. He is one of the very few people in the world who has completed a PhD in biomechanics in surfing, where he investigated the performance of aerial maneuvers. He is also an accredited strength and conditioning coach who has supported athletes at state, national, and international levels. I've looked up to James as a role model in academia for quite a few years now. His research, particularly in his PhD, was conducted at an incredibly high standard, and my own personal PhD research has been heavily influenced by the work that he's already done. Aside from his research, James is also a passionate surfer who also happens to absolutely rip. In this episode, James answers the question, what's the go with surfing biomechanics? We discuss what biomechanics actually is and why it's important to understand how we move as humans. We also discuss a couple of his research papers he published in surfing and how surfers can benefit from simply having this knowledge. If you find this episode valuable, don't hesitate to share it with a mate or post it up on your Instagram story and tag the Flow Performance Podcast. If I haven't made it clear enough already, James is way smarter than I am and rips way harder than I do. So if there's anyone you should be listening to, it's definitely him. With this in mind, I'm going to stop talking so we can dive straight into the chat with Dr. James Forsyth. Alrighty, welcome back to the Flow Performance Podcast. My name is Ricky Dan, founder of Flow Nutrition. Today, I'm in Wollongong at the University of Wollongong with Dr. James Forsyth. Mate, how are we doing? Great, great. Just got a cheeky wave in, so feeling good. This morning has been wonderful. Had a little tour of Wollongong, had a nice little surf out at Sharky Beach. It's been absolutely lovely. And now, yeah, University of Wollongong. This is lovely in here. Yeah. It's nice. nice lots, of, lots of greenery. Lots, greenery. lots of greenery, yes, exactly. Yeah. We're in the biomechanics lab, which is very appropriate for today's question, which is what's the go with biomechanics? And in particular, in this chat, it'll probably be around surfing biomechanics because that's obviously, as the listeners would have heard, that's what you did your PhD in. Um, so the obvious place to start is probably what is biomechanics for those who sort of aren't familiar with sports science and what it is where yeah. do you sort of start with that yeah so i guess commonly you would think of biomechanics as trying to understand technique right so biomechanical analyses are really looking at how the body moves in space and that is fundamentally underpinned by the kind of the the blending of biology and physics to explain human movement yeah interesting so we've got in this room, we've got some pretty expensive looking equipment. So I'm guessing a lot of it, and a lot of them look like cameras. So we're capturing a lot of footage um, to sort of analyze body positions, I'm guessing. That's a pretty big part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, biomechanics as a field in general has become quite extensive. Uh, there's sports biomechanics, there's clinical biomechanics, there's a newer field called comparative biomechanics, which is looking at animals animal movement but yeah the the idea is you're just trying to understand or use the systems of biology and physics to explain human movement or movement generally uh and like f for my 
uh, research that has predominantly been using sensors that look at uh, the muscle activation patterns that are essentially in controlling movement. Uh, but also our lab, lab does a lot of work with uh, motion capture and uh, trying to reconstruct uh, essentially digital skeletons of people so we can uh, use some complex modelling to understand the specific forces exerted on joints and uh, look at how the body moves in space. Yeah, I guess that's probably what a lot of people associate with biomechanics is looking up on the big screen and seeing the 3D skeleton model of someone doing a dance or something. <laughs> and I can obviously see the um, potential impact on like research purposes, like how valuable that would be. Mm. But what, how can we sort of use that in day-to-day -day sporting environments, whether that's a sporting club or team? What's the sort of practical sort of applications to that? Yeah, so a lot of the research will look to inform uh, what is, uh, I guess, an optimised or reduced risk of injury for specific movement patterns. So still we're, we're generally focusing on lab-based experiments where we're trying to understand things in a very controlled environment. Technology is evolving, though. Um, some of this, one of the systems that we have in here is a markerless motion capture. So the, the purpose of this technology, which is driven by a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence to be able to use just raw video files to reconstruct uh, 3D skeletons as opposed to using you know, marker-based systems. Uh, the purpose there is it, it allows you to take stuff outside of a lab and into the field. Um, in the US uh, in the States, they use markerless a little bit more uh, with team sports to try and understand some of those more team sport actions like running, change of direction, that sort of thing in a more contextually valid space. But yes, a lot of the research that biome biomechanists do is trying to understand how we can improve performance and mitigate injury risk. And I'm, I'm just thinking like there are some good practical applications, but looking around us, like this sort of equipment, you're probably not going to see out on a footy field or down on the beach. So my mind just sort of goes straight to how is the stuff in here sort of relevant to in the ocean because you know you mentioned a lot of biomechanics is about force production and as we've spoken about in a different podcast you know it's a pretty unique way we express force in surfing it's through a surfboard on a fluid surface so how do you sort of go about replicating that in a room like this yeah uh or do you even attempt to do that in the first place you can try I think it is very much uh, something you can try. So part of my PhD, we did try to uh, match up some video footage uh, of uh, essentially professionals performing airs uh, with what we essentially had well, utilized in a lab-based task. So uh, that obviously involved a lot of video analysis, trying to identify what we call critical features of movement uh, that were associated with uh, landing and like landing successfully in surfing, uh, which essentially gave us essentially a list of movement outcomes to look for. Uh, and then when it came to trying to match that up with a lab-based task, that was more about do we see the same movement patterns if we look at um, the, the simulated task. So in the lab, we had them using a mini tramp and a soft top surfboard, uh, running up to the tramp, jumping off the trampoline and landing on a crash mat, uh, capturing things like joint angles and muscle activation strategies, as well as the impact forces, and trying to take the critical features that we had and align those and see whether it matched up. 
And that's very common, commonly seen now in sort of skill acquisition research in general. And the whole dry land training concept for water-based sports is, in my experience, it's still a little uncertain. There's, there's research that supports it. There's research that opposes it. And because that's essentially what my whole PhD is in as well, right? So the elite review, I had to go through all the other sports that have, that have attempted to do that. Uh, and the, the biggest one that well, the most profound study that we found was that springboard diving one where they looked at the divers training on the springboard versus actually in the water and the kinematic differences and the changes in technique. And obviously we both know Brendan Ferrier and his work with skateboarding, um, looking at aerials off a half pipe. And so there's lots of different ways we can sort of approach trying to, to trying to train on dry land, but there's just so many factors that go into it. And at the end of the day, like, are we ever going to be able to recreate what it's like to do an aerial off, off a wave in the ocean? Like, what are you... Probably not. Like, I can't see that we're going to be able to truly replicate it in a controlled environment. The closest that we're going to get is trying to do it in a wave pool, but then we've still got to make a lot of leaps with technology, right? We, we just don't have the technology to measure things in the ocean. Uh, the equipment, as you mentioned, very expensive. Uh, water is not very friendly to electronics, so uh, <laughs> that is a major, major challenge. Um, I think there is scope eventually to be able to uh, develop some 3D models off of video footage. Uh, there's a group in Germany uh, who I only recently found this out, uh, like this week. So really kind of fresh in my mind, but there is a group in Germany who have essentially been using a standing wave and two video cameras to try and estimate uh, joint position and develop a 3D skeleton. What do you mean a standing wave? So, good point. Uh, <laughs> Can't picture it. In Europe, uh, with a river, lots of water moving. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, in Munich, they have this, like, really, really uh, well-known river wave. Apparently, the German government or someone was uh, kind enough to help build some of these around Germany. I'm sure that there is an environmental and economical benefit to it, but it also develops a standing wave that surfers can ride. Uh, and then it controls for the position, because I guess the major thing with trying to estimate body positions using that biomechanical technology is that if someone is moving through space, it's really hard for you to get enough data to say that this is the position they're in at this point in time. Yeah. They're gonna move out of the frame of a camera. Unless you're in a room like this where you can have a big square space that you can map out and yeah. they're moving within that environment. Right? Yeah, 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 but the only way they can do that is if they're running on a treadmill. You can't do that on a wave that has yeah. to move, yeah. right? Um, yeah, so having a standing wave, although definitely not the same energy, shape, whatever, as a normal wave, yeah. still is a good sort of starting point, yeah. if that makes sense, to yeah. try and uh, characterise the movement pattern, mm -hmm. even if it's just as simple as like trying to pump off the bottom and do a turn. That's, that's leaps and bounds above what we can do at the moment with the techno technology limitations that we have. But as, as, as we've spoken about before, like we are still in the infancy stages yeah. of surfing research. So like that's a start. So let's give it a crack, right? Like yeah. even we've had a little play around with some of the 
um, EMG stuff with surfing and we've had chats about trying to do it on skateboarding and yeah. seeing similarities like yeah. I feel like it's things like that that are only going to advance the space where you just give things like that a crack and see is the data valuable is it reliable is it useful mm. and then if it is then proceed down that route but sometimes it takes just I don't know doing those unique things to <laughs> it's definitely like we are just trying to explore what what works and what doesn't I think that's kind of the both the the nice thing but also the challenging thing about being in this space is that people don't really want to support financially things that are just an idea don't know if it's going to work uh, so you need lots of really passionate people to drive that. It's hard to create a convincing pitch around that. <laughs> yeah, especially when the literature on the topic in general or the, or the topics that underpin that are somewhat uh, conflicting or non-certain. So, yeah, it is challenging, but it's also, it's also really cool. Like It means that we can just try different things, see what works, and as long as there's a good level of, I guess scientific scrutiny behind it then you can sort of build on those things that do work so what did you find in your in your aerial study does that does that work is that a viable method that surfers should implement if they're trying to improve their aerials so we looked at two aerial variations we looked at just a straight air and the uh, air reverse and all of this just front side um, from what we saw in the video footage uh, First of all, there's heaps of air reverses that were performed. This was of, this was taken from data from 2015 on the uh, championship tour yeah. for the men. Uh, so potentially even a little bit outdated, or maybe the maybe the ratios aren't quite the same. But lots of air reverses, uh, not quite as many straight airs. But we kind of used that one in particular just because it was like a nice sort of stepping stone. It's yeah. deemed generally to be simpler, less complex. Yeah would argue that at times it's probably more complex, but anyway, that's maybe a little bit later discussion. Um, and so when we looked at the critical features for those two, we had three for our straight air and then five for our air reverse. Uh, they related to things like uh, where along the surfboard the land they were landing, whether they, they had a uh, stance width that was greater than their hips, uh, where the, what the position the front ankle was in. So. Uh, something that was common across both was that at the point of impact when they were landing or making contact with the wave, the lead ankle was always in a dorsiflex position, which is something that is kind of counterintuitive to what normal landing uh, mechanics is. And what does dorsiflexion sort of look like? So dorsiflexion is essentially where you're trying to pull your toes back to your shin. Right? So the ankle is essentially collapsing under you. So with the ankle in that position, that means that you're actually not able to exert the forces required to try and dissipate it. You essentially have lost a joint to absorb force through. So obviously that has implications for like the forces they experience when they land, but also like potential injury risk later on. Yeah. Uh, so for the straight air, when we were comparing it to what we did in the lab, we saw all three critical features appearing, which was great. Yeah, yeah really, really good. Uh, for the air reverse, a little less obvious, uh, three of the five, so 60%. Uh, given what you've just said, that uh, <laughs> there is potentially like a lot of uh, discrepancies between dry land and, uh, I guess, in the sporting context uh, movement. 
uh, we, we were pretty happy with that. We were happy to say that over 50% of what we were seeing represented what we saw in that elite model of performance, which was taken from the video analysis. Yeah, that's epic. And all of those results sort of feed into your other study then that you published as well, looking at the, um, the actual analysis of scoring manoeuvres. And is that sort of what led into choosing aerials? Because you found some pretty you know, significant and profound findings in that study. Um, do you just want to quickly run through that as well and what you did yeah, there? Yeah, so from that same year of competition, we uh, took all of the scores associated with every wave that had at least one uh, completed manoeuvre. Uh, and then essentially categorise them into waves that were performed with just the turns, so nothing above the lip, no uh, barrel rides either. Uh, waves that had a uh, barrel, uh, obviously that's a little bit different in terms of the technical skills that are required and obviously dependent on the location. And then waves that had airs as well. So the way that that study was, uh, I guess, analyzed or the data was analyzed, we yeah, had those three groups and then just did some simple comparisons between the mean scores for each, uh, not including those that had a fall. So we were really looking at what are the waves that count. Yeah. Uh, and fairly overwhelmingly, there was a clear winner with aerials, waves with aerials having uh, higher scores. Uh, that sort of demonstrated the value there. But you could tell like just generally how the surfing was progressing at that time, that it was just that was what was being rewarding, you see, in the elite level, but all the way through down to junior development. What was particularly interesting as well was how the different events were scoring them differently as well, scoring, and obviously as surfers we know that if you surf in pipeline, you're going to get points for the barrel, right? If you're surfing a high-performance wave like snapper, you want to be doing your big turns and aerials and stuff, so... Um, yeah, just an observation that I think is clear just by watching the events, but that you sort of dived into that as well. And it's a really cool paper. I'll try and leave both of those in the, in the notes as well for um, anyone listening that wants to read more about them because they're really cool papers. And I actually use both of those papers to justify, because as we were chatting about before, the start of my PhD was going to be looking at aerials because I just think, yeah, that's, that's where surfing's going. It's going and it already has gone to the air, right? Um, and that was a really good justification of like why it is so important to start looking at that. And you know, with the theme of this topic today, like biomechanics is just going to be such a cool way to look at that. Mm. So, do you think moving forward from here, in a perfect world, what would you be looking at biomechanics-wise in aerials from here on? If you had unlimited budget, if you could get some equipment down at the beach, like what would be the dream surfing biomechanics? next research topic if you could get it to happen uh yeah there would be some sort of camera system that is set up alongside probably uh a wave pool something in a wave pool something where you know you're going to get something happening at the, the, the right time yeah. uh obviously the, the ocean is ideal but i think if you really want to understand the movement we do need to control it a bit more uh and then trying to char like characterise movement, understand the muscle activations that's contributing to that movement, and then really tease out what technical skills are required. Like, what, what, and like, you can even go as far to say as like, if there's enough data, what, what positions look good? What is, what is it that George, judges are actually scoring? Like, are they scoring something because of the magnitude, or are they scoring it because of, like, it looks cool? Right? Or it looks challenging. Is it actually challenging? 
these are all things that like maybe don't match up. Uh, like obviously it's a very complex skill. It is very technically challenging relative to the rest of the surfing uh, maneuvers. But I don't know if the, the judges are always on point. I don't know if they always reward uh, some of the more technical landings. Brendan, if you're listening, <laughs> dr drop a little comment here, mate. Help <laughs> us out, because that is fascinating. Well, style is just joint angles at the end of the day, isn't it? If you want to make it really scientific, someone, the difference between, you know, John John's layback snap and Mick's big carving turn is like joint angles. Mm. And if you can measure that accurately, mm and then assess that with judging criteria, even though it is pretty subjective, like, yeah, wow, I've never even thought of that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, um... I don't think surfing is immune to this, though. I'm Sorry, I don't think surfing is the only sport that is immune to this, though. Like, snowboarding, yeah. free, free, freestyle snowboarding, freestyle yeah. skiing, yeah. their judging criteria is also relatively subjective. Mm. Well, it's entirely subjective, but underpinning some of those subjective categories is yeah. actually objective information that mm. they can't necessarily determine. So like magnitude, did some, someone jump higher? Yeah. Like, can you tell that? Mm. Maybe not. Maybe that's something that's gonna come too. Maybe some video technologies, video analysis technologies are gonna start to be integrated into yeah. uh, like broadcasts, yeah. competition. Like that would really push the sport forward, I think, like in, in some ways. You could probably feed that into some sort of AI model where you look at every nine point ride and then just have it feed into a system where it looks at all of the, I don't know, joint angles in those top turns. If you know those, those ways where it's a single maneuver that causes the, the excellent score, like you could just bring all them together and I don't know, I don't know, much, don't know much about AI, but I'm sure someone way smarter than me out there could build something like that. I don't know if we really want that. Sorry, surfing purists. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, that takes the take, that takes the, the 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 beauty and the art out of it, it which is is one part of like what is so cool about the sport. Because yeah. that's I guess something that's kind of happening in those wave pool competitions, like what you watch on the the CT when they're doing the like the Kelly Slater's wave pool. It's almost scripted. They know that they need to do this turn exactly. in this section, and exactly, you know, are you expressing yourself on the wave? No, not really. You're trying to manufacture a score so that you can win. Yeah. And it's why you see surfers choose competitive surfing or free surfing, right? Like some just don't agree with it, and it's crazy we don't actually think more about the judging criteria because that is how we define success in our sport, right? And you look at every other sport and every single metric they tie back to. The performance outcome which is running faster or swimming faster or getting that outcome and our outcome is getting a higher judging score so i mean i'm not totally immersed in the surfing skill um skill world around the skills training but you know the judges criteria is pretty bloody important mm. if you're a competitive surfer mm. i like it what a great idea well mate if anyone's out there wanting to pursue that how can they get in touch and then ask some questions or yeah uh of course just uh Hit me up on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, uh, James Forsyth Zero, or uh, email me, jforsyth at uaw.edu.au. Fantastic, mate. Thank you very much again for your insights. That's no actually a really sick little chat. Biomechanics and surfing, guys. Embrace it, get around it. Yeah, I love absolutely. it. Absolutely.
All right, listeners, thank you very much for tuning in for another episode. We will catch you again next week to answer more of your questions. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Flow Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat and found loads of value that you can use to fuel more flow state in your life. If you did enjoy the content and want to support the podcast, don't forget to give it a five-star rating, leave a review, or even better, share it to a mate, post it up on your Instagram story, and tag Flow Performance Podcast. We really do appreciate any support in getting this content out into the world. So thanks again for tuning in, and we will catch you again next week.